0: The West Coast Traveler is an adventure in itself with content created by professional journalists and amazing photos provided by our readers. WestcoastTraveler.com is the newest travel network exploring all corners of Western Canada and the U.S. You'll see stunning photos and videos, read engaging travel features from around Western Canada and the U.S., experience all the West Coast has to offer. Begin planning your next adventure. Visit WestcoastTraveler.com.
1: Welcome to Off the Page, a weekly podcast by the Comox Valley Record. I'm Erin Halischuk, a journalist with The Record. Join me as we take a deeper look at the people and stories in the Comox Valley. On this episode, we thought it would be appropriate to try and take a deeper look into what is currently happening in Ukraine, and despite being thousands of kilometers away, how Canadians and in particular Vancouver Islanders can assist those caught in the conflict. On the podcast today, we have Dr. Sergei Ukalchek, a professor of European history with expertise in Ukraine, Russia, and the history of the Soviet Union at the University of Victoria. He received his Bachelor of Arts from Kiev University and a Master of Arts from the Ukrainian Academy of Sciences. He came to Canada in 1995 to pursue a PhD in Russian and Eastern European history at the University of Alberta. After graduating, he taught for a year at the University of Michigan before coming to Victoria in 2000. And one.
2: Welcome to the podcast, Sir Hay. Thank you so much for inviting me, Erin. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Well, let's start with yourself personally. How are you doing? And do you have family in Ukraine right now that you're able to keep in contact with?
2: Yes, I do have family and a number of friends. And uh, with friends, the main connection venue is social media. There is still internet connection in most Ukrainian cities. There is pretty good telephone connection for now. But uh, it has been difficult to buy food for the last maybe two weeks. There's a slight improvement in the last couple of days, but also the pharmacies are not really provisioning what they uh, what the people need. So it's quite difficult for people. But they keep thinking of themselves as the winners of this war, as the winners because they are resilient, because they are not giving up, and definitely uh, looking at all threat with resistance
1: think that
2: spirit of resilience comes from? It is actually connected to what happened to Russia and Ukraine since the collapse of the Soviet Union, because the two countries went in the opposite directions in terms of political system. Russia pretty soon consolidated an authoritarian model in which it is really the president who is making most of the decisions. And by now, there is no opposition. There is no oppositional press by now. It's a dictatorship, ultimately. Ukraine went into the opposite direction. It was perhaps at times chaotic. It definitely had an issue with corruption. And yet it was democracy, where presidents and prime ministers changed. But this is the reason, really, that uh, modern Ukrainian identity is not just about those wonderful embroidered shirts and singing and dancing, which we also do well, as everybody knows. But it's also about democracy. It's about Ukrainians positioning themselves as the people who escaped from the oppressive Soviet empire and don't want to go back in any way, whereas Russia is trying to to push them back by force.
1: I touched a little bit on that right there, is a little bit about the more modern history between Ukraine and Russia. Is there a part
2: that Canadians are missing? I think the part missing in most media coverage of this war is actually that Mr. Putin is also at war with his own people. So he doesn't want a successful democratic Ukraine next door because he is suppressing civic society, has completely suppressed by now civic society in his own country. He saw Ukraine as a potential model for his own society, going to the streets, uh, protesting, replacing the dictatorial regime with democracy. So that is, I think, the dimension which is often missing. And of course, there is a colossal misinformation about the issue of NATO, which was started on purpose by the Russian Federation, because it tried to explain the war as the need to prevent Ukraine from becoming a member of NATO. In truth, though, historians and diplomats and political scientists would tell you right away that NATO never wanted Ukraine to start this. Ukraine was never offered an accession plan um, to join the bloc. The last time the Ukrainian membership was discussed in 2008, it was decisively rejected, blocked by two major European players, uh, being Germany and France. It's really the way to present, in the eyes of Mr. Putin's domestic audience, it's the way to present this war, the war against NATO somehow, against the West. But it's not the military West that Mr. Putin is facing That's the democracy that he is fighting in Ukraine, in his own country, and, of course, the Western notions of what democracy is.
1: For yourself, growing up in Kiev and going to school there prior to the fall of the Soviet Union and living there after, can you describe a little bit about what that was like from living under Soviet rule to Ukraine becoming its own independent country?
2: It was liberating. It was celebrations on the streets. It was people voting with huge majorities uh, at a referendum in favor of leaving the Soviet Union and becoming an independent country. It was in a way the time of optimistic illusions because not all the promises we saw by then were realized. Some roads could not be taken, others proved very difficult to navigate. And yet, Ukrainians are fighting for what they acquired in those years. The sense of being free to speak, your mind, being free to participate in social organizations, create political parties, change your presidents, and change your governments as often as you want to, because this is how the government is responsible to the people. It was imperfect, but it was a democratic country, and Mr. Putin never expected to find such resistance in Ukraine.
1: Some people I know this has been around a bit speculated that he waited after the Olympics finished. Is that something that you see happening? Why did he choose right at the end of
2: February to start this war? That is his usual trick. Uh, But of course, according to the Western intelligence, he's really a servant of Mr. Xi, the, uh, the Chinese dictator. So Russia compared to China is tiny in terms of the economy. And now that all the sanctions went into into action, it really means that Mr. Putin is now at the mercy of China. Putin knew what was about to happen. And so he made efforts to fireproof his economy from the sanctions. I don't think they ever expected the sanctions on that scale. So he was trying to prepare in all senses. He also expected an easy win. And now that this didn't happen... He and his military commanders uh, are switching to indiscriminate bombardment of large cities. And that, of course, is a military crime. The list of military crimes accomplished by the criminal leadership of the Russian Federation and its army is growing. With
1: this invasion going on, are there nearby countries that used to be part of the Soviet Union? Are they at all at risk of a similar fate?
2: There are quite a few. Very notably, that would be Moldova and Georgia. Moldova is the immediate neighbor of Ukraine to the west, but it also has a Russian separatist enclave within it. And the same with Georgia. Part of uh, the Georgian sovereign territory is occupied by Russians who created unrecognized separatist republics there. And uh, in Europe, perhaps the most vulnerable is actually Latvia, which is very unfortunate because... Latvia is a member of the NATO, but it's one of the smallest countries in Europe. And I think the West's actions in Ukraine now are really the signal about what is going to happen if Mr. Putin were to go on and try to grab territory or establish his control over other countries. He just wanted to test how decisively would the West defend its allies. And of course, as you realize, in Ukraine... The attitude of the West was, so we provide you with instructors, we provide you with some weapons, and then we take a a step back and see what happens. If you're able to survive for three, five days, then they come back, then colossal sanctions take place, and we will be supplying you with arms. But it's still your fight. And I'm afraid that the Russian Federation is well on its way to becoming an ultimate evil for the 21st century.
1: Speaking of... Those political parties, I think a perfect example is the president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky. What was his perception like? I understand he doesn't have that lengthy of a political background. Before he came into power, he most experienced as an actor or comedian. What was the perception of him by Ukrainians when he first came to power? And has that changed at all?
2: He's actually of Jewish background. He comes from a family of the Holocaust survivor. Because a Jewish family in Ukraine, his family had uh, four brothers. Three of them were killed during the Holocaust. One survived. He served in the Soviet army. That was his grandfather. So he's Jewish on both on, on both on his mother's side and on his father's side. And it's no secret. Everybody in Ukraine knows now the very fact that Ukraine could elect a Jewish president and. Even more interesting, at the moment he came into power, there was also a Jewish prime minister in Ukraine, uh, whom he inherited from the previous president. So Ukraine was one of perhaps only two countries in the world, I imagine, Israel and Ukraine, having at the same time both a Jewish president and a Jewish prime minister, so much for the alleged Ukrainian anti-Semitism, right? So people, people are thinking in political terms. They evaluate the political program and the promise this person represented. Zelensky didn't have any experience at all, but he was a very, very popular actor and comedian. And the people who were tired, really, of uh, the slow economic reform, on of this never-ending war with Russia because the war has not started on February 24th. The war has been going on for eight years before that. They sought perhaps a new phase, a phase which is, from a totally different background, not connected to politics. Because sometimes people see in Ukraine politics as a a mark of your corruptness, of you being included into certain networks, of you being over by a powerful oligarch who pays you money and such things. So coming from outside is often seen as a hope... To get a real person, a person just like we, like this the small person who is not who is an ordinary one. And he's very ordinary in this way. His charisma is similar to Charlie Chaplin's. So, for those of us who know Charlie Chaplin's character, the little Trump, what was the power and appeal of the little Trump? He was powerless, but he had big dreams. And he, he dreamt of happiness for all the people. And that, and that was the kind of appeal Zelensky had. He came as an ordinary person from the street saying, saying, I'm just like you, and I'll do whatever it takes. And he tried, but then Russia invaded. Russia has been waiting also for him to become president as well, because they thought, well, if Ukraine has an unexperienced president, a president who comes from a Russian-speaking Jewish family, that would be easy to take out. He wouldn't get much support, but no. The Ukrainians, of course, rallied around him, and he also proved very a very good politician and excellent military leader as such
1: speaking of president zelensky not long ago he made a plea to essentially fast track an application to the european union do you see this as something coming together this quickly
2: they may decide to fast track the ukrainian application but we should realize it's a symbolic gesture joining the eu would do nothing to Ukrainian defenses. Joining the EU is typically about a billion regulations suddenly applying to your economy and to everything, and you have to observe how much grain you are selling, and you get quotas. And Europe is all about the bureaucratic regulation. But in the minds of Ukrainians, it's something else. They see Europe as a metaphor of a good life, the rule of law, the struggle against corruption, Economic opportunity for everybody, and of course, democratic freedoms. So they see Europe as a metaphor for what they want for a successful, democratic, and pro- prosperous country. Most ordinary Ukrainians have no idea about what kind of bureaucracy will become impl- applicable the moment Ukraine joins the European Union.
0: CanadianEvergreen.com is your trusted news source for all things green, offering up to date news and stories from Canada's booming cannabis industry. Content you can trust from black press media.
1: And in terms of sanctions, what do you see the effect of those having, if any? Are they mostly just going to really have an effect on kind of the ordinary Russian citizen? Or will these Western sanctions and sanctions from the EU actually make a difference?
2: They will. The problem is sanctions don't work right away, they usually take time to really, truly afflict damage on, on the Russian economy. Right now, the greatest, the greatest of them all is that the Russian airlines cannot fly anywhere except for Belarus. And, of course, the Russian ruble collapsed and the Russian bond market collapsed. And I think what was revealed in these episodes was that the Putin government did not expect a longer conflict. It did not prepare the country for the sanctions on that scale. They were ready for some. Like Mr. Putin famously removed his uh, enormously expensive yacht from the German port because he realized that it would be confiscated by the Germans once he started the war. But I don't think he was expecting anything on that scale. And it may well be that the Russian elites that are being hit with very painful sanctions would have consultations within their group to see what can possibly be done about Mr. Putin's obsession.
1: You touched on it a little bit before. This is a fairly large question, but what is the role of the West in this war, and what can they do?
2: Well, uh, the West has provided training to the Ukrainian army. Canada played a prominent role in that, together with the United States and the United Kingdom and some other European countries, but on a smaller scale. And so about 45,000 Ukrainian soldiers went through these training sessions. That's very helpful, also because they were introduced to the most recent achievements of military strategy, tactics, and the hardware. But now, of course, the hardware the West has been providing to Ukraine was primarily, overwhelmingly, of the kind you can carry with you. But, of course, the modern war is mostly fought in the air. It's the control of the air that matters. And for that, Ukraine would need modern radar equipment and modern anti-aircraft missiles. What it has is some old Soviet stuff, which is still working well, by the way, but it's bound to run out of it soon. So the West started much of these deliveries at the very last moment, December, January, and after the war has started. It should have been started way, way earlier, not even years, perhaps decades A lot of the information about the the
1: needs of the Ukrainian army, how even Canadians, North Americans can assist, and a lot of the information about what's going on has played out on social media. What are some of your thoughts about the media coverage of the war and has social media helped or increased
2: the source of disinformation in this entire conflict? This is actually the conflict in which the Western companies controlling most of social media clearly took sides from the start. And I'm grateful for that, because, of course, the Russian disinformation campaigns are enormous. And the attempt to see them as alternative sources of information, like the other side needs to be heard as well, is ridiculous. And I think it was the right step to suppress much of uh, Russian presence on social media. Of course, the Russian authorities immediately retaliated by closing social media within the country because they didn't want their own citizens to find out. Russia is fighting a dishonorable campaign of disinformation against its own people, its own soldiers, too, because it has issued the instructions not to bring back the bodies for funerals, but rather to cremate or bury the soldiers close to the uh, area of military conflict. So they intentionally don't want any anti-war protests. In, in the so doing, they're denying the relatives the right to know what happened to the uh, loved ones who were killed in Ukraine. And the number of casualties is actually growing. So in the West, by now, I think it's well established that The major media platforms like CNN, BBC, CBC here in Canada have extensive network helping them triangulate the reports to check via satellite images the areas and confirm that what the photograph shows is in fact true. You can safely rely on these media outlets.
1: Speaking of the impact on on citizens i know there's been so many rallies in the past two weeks here in canada on vancouver island what can canadians who feel this disconnect with this war that's happening halfway around the world who may or may not have friends relatives around the area how can they assist and
2: do these rallies of support do they help at all They do, in a sense, because they put pressure on our own politicians, that they need to do more. There was an embarrassing moment when our cabinet was not prepared to send lethal weapons to Ukraine. Why? Really? And it was revealed that some cabinet ministers are opposed to this. Really? So, like, all your allies, except, of course, for Germany, are sending lethal lethal, uh, arms to Ukraine, but Canada somehow doesn't? Why would that be exactly So putting pressure on our government is important, also because there's a major issue of refugees now. Canada has committed to fast-track the applications, but it hasn't really said uh, what is going to happen to these people after they come on the visa. Ukraine's immediate neighbor to the west, Poland, made the right thing. They basically made an announcement, we will take as many refugees as they come, We are prepared to take a million or more, and this is what they are doing. And I think from now on, the Polish-Ukrainian friendship is going to be a really important thing for us Ukrainians. And Canada is doing well now, too. There are ways that every Canadian can help with a donation to the Canadian Red Cross for the Ukraine campaign. There's also the Canada-Ukraine Foundation. Uh, which it works in connection with the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, and they run several programs. You can even choose to which one you would prefer to donate. And as you know, the Canadian federal government has promised too much donations to the Canadian Red Cross in the Ukraine campaign, up to $50 million. And our province, the British Columbia, was one of the first to respond by donating $1 million. We appreciate that. And now... A myriad of individuals are doing the same to bring it to the total 100 million.
1: I know this is probably the million-dollar question. How do you see this war ending, and what does that
2: look like? Are negotiations even a possibility? The negotiations are ongoing, but this is only because the Ukrainian side doesn't want to send a signal that it would not negotiate. The negotiations are primarily about humanitarian issues for now, and Russia is proving a really vile aggressor in that it doesn't stop shelling even during the negotiations. That really puts you in world history in a separate category of the oven. But wars, modern wars tend to be short, but this one is not going to be. This is because the expected Russian blitzkrieg, the first victory, hasn't happened. Mr. Putin is a dictator who projects an image of a macho like the shirtless guy on a horse who is, who is always right and never loses. Like for his reputation to be perceived as having lost something would be a colossal blow. In fact, he could be overthrown right after that. This makes it difficult for us, the Western uh, commentators and for Ukrainians, to see a meaningful end to this war. Because now that he hasn't received what he wanted, Mr. Putin went more violent started bombarding the cities indiscriminately with the kind of arms that are not normally used on urban areas because it's impossible to distinguish between industrial and civilian targets. Or even in destroying infrastructure is already a war crime. That makes it actually very difficult to predict how things are unfolding looking, going forward. One thing for sure, Ukraine is not going to be defeated. There is no way because no Russian army would be enough to police an occupied Ukraine. It may take some cities. Russia might take some cities, win some battles. It's not going to win a war. But because of the nature of the Russian political regime and the lack of a voice for the Russian society, we don't have a realistic projection of what is going to happen. We need to keep pushing.
1: That's this edition of Off the Page, produced by the Comox Valley Record. Thank you for joining us. If you have suggestions for topics or guests, we would like to hear from you. Email us at offthepage at